This is the Tao of Business Law, powered by Blissness School, an exploration into the soul of business. Welcome to Blissness School's Tao of Business Law podcast, where we dive into the written and unwritten rules of business. In each episode, we'll speak to a different entrepreneur and learn how they stepped into their own unique purpose, overcame challenges, and ultimately created a life that they love. Through casual discussions, we explore the inherent humanity that weaves through all of us. After all, business is merely a reflection of the individuals in charge. Listen to others who have already gone through the rougher parts, so you don't have to. Hi, and welcome to the Dow Business Law. I am really excited for talking with Rebecca Wynn. Her new book is called 100 Daffodils, and it will be released on March 24th. You can pre-order right now by going to Amazon, and it will be released in Barnes and Nobles. Is that correct as well? Everywhere. Uh, Everywhere you stores. We love independent bookstores. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, we'll just jump right into it. So, the Dow Business Law is someone doing something for someone else in exchange for something. So, tell us, who are you? That's the broadest question ever. Yeah, um, and it's an interesting question at this particular point in my life because the who of who I am is transitioning, um, assuming that we identify ourselves through what we do. So I have been a landscape designer. I own a high-end residential landscape design company, and I've owned that for a little over 20 years. And now, I'm in no way used to saying this, but uh, now I'm also a writer and um, a, a, published, a published author, in fact. An almost published author, yeah. It's funny because I've always considered myself an artist. Um, that's what my degree was in. And um, I have no trouble owning that. But um, this whole writing a book thing has been... It's been a really, really, really interesting journey. So um, I am those two things. I'm also a mother, and um, I have one perfect son. <laughs> uh, I always say I only got one, but I got the best one. Um, and he lives in Los Angeles. And a bit more about this transition. How did you start this transition into having a successful business that you loved, and then? coming into writing a, a, a memoir, not just a book, it's a memoir. So it's yeah. really... Doubly scary. Um, this book actually began as journal entries. It is a collection of essays. And I typically journal in the garden. And I began to notice these sort of obscure things that were happening in nature around me. And then I would draw this equally obscure line between that and something that was going on in my life. I would just 
write that down as a way of processing what was going on in my life. I journal in spirals. People have given me beautiful journal books and I never use them. <laughs> I always journal in spirals. And I've usually got six of them spread out all over the house and I just grab one and open it to a page. And I was reading, rereading through some of my journal entries one day. This was kind of a long time ago, like maybe 10 years ago. And, and I noticed this pattern in a lot of my journal entries. And so then I started reading through and looking for that, you know, and I tore those out of my spirals and I stuck them in a drawer. And I remember thinking as I was closing that drawer, you know, one of these days I'm going to open that drawer and there's going to be a book in there. So what, what, tell us about some of these patterns. Like what were you, what was coming out to you? Well, I can tell you what it isn't. <laughs> it isn't our family are the roots and our friends are the branches and the leaves. <laughs> it's nothing like that. Um, <clears throat> there's one piece that I wrote that actually did not make it into this book. I think it will be in the next one. Um, that's called bamboo therapy. It, <laughs> it draws a line between an invasive horticultural species <laughs> like bamboo and uh, the people that we allow into our lives that are also not really welcome or good for us. And um, so that's one example. I guess I should try to think of an example that's actually in this book. Um, that's a beautiful example. Just throw had said, right, like nature is my temple and like we can Definitely. do that and everything. That's, that's the thing that I try to practice re routinely every single day. You know, I go on forest hikes and baths, some people say, because lets my brain kind of like meditation. If anyone's ever gone into meditation, you just kind of let go of the processing. Right. So what, um, so tell us about um, what transition you were going through that, I mean, was this just kind of like just a general journal entry or was there some kind of event that? Oh no, there were definitely events. <laughs> that encouraged you to pull those back out or to continue writing or? Well, so it began, um, so the book begins with two, um, entries that I wrote in the immediate morning after, and then the next morning after, this first explosive um, experience with my husband that felt like it came out of nowhere. Um, as I say in the book, of course, that's never true. <laughs> it didn't come out of nowhere. I just didn't see it coming. Um, and so that's where it opens. And then that's the prologue. And then starting with the first chapter, it's a couple of years down the road and um, things have not gotten better in my marriage. And so I um, begin to sort of unfold that experience. So, so the, um, many, maybe some of your listeners don't actually know the difference between an autobiography and a memoir, but an autobiography takes a life from birth all the way through death or the present moment. And a memoir is just a slice of time in a life. That's why people can write multiple memoirs. 
And um, so this is, this is the period of time between the beginning of the end of my marriage and then he and I were actually separated for eight years before we got divorced. So that eight years is, uh, was very critical in my path because that was when the journey, my spiritual journey and my psychological journey really began. And then it intensified during those years when we were separated. And in that time, I got into a relationship with a much younger guy. And so then there was that journey and, um, and the healing that that afforded me and then um, how that turned out and then the divorce. So by the time I emerged from all of that, <laughs> um, I had some very profound shifts in how I viewed myself, how I viewed the world, um, how I showed up in the world. So you were with your husband, married, not even just with him, but married for <laughs> how long? Well, if you, it, I always tell people it depends on how you count it. Um, we separated right before our 24th anniversary. And then we divorced um, eight years later. So um, I think we'd been married almost 32 years by that point, but kind of, you know, so. Well, that's, that's pretty profound. So who are you? You had this sort of sense of self for 24 years that kind of solidifies and you, you kind of, I don't know, I'm not, I don't want to speak for you, but I can speak for myself. At a certain point, we sort of get into a rhythm or a rut, or we have a sense like, oh, this is who I am. And yeah. we were afforded this opportunity to completely break that, but it probably didn't seem like that at the time. Well, <laughs> it didn't seem like an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it felt like I'd been hurled off a balcony. But, um, but I do talk about that because I was a stay-at-home mother most of that time. I did some things, you know, I sold real estate when we first married. I started Whimsical Gardens uh, while we were still married, but it was really more of an artistic outlet than anything that I was trying to make money at. My primary thing was I was a stay-at-home mother and I loved that. I have never been happier than when I was um, spending all my time with my, my perfect son. <laughs> <laughs> Talk a little bit about that time period and sort of how that initially hit you. Cause that's a, I think it's really important to get into the, the shock of the events, you know, like, cause, cause you really well, I get into it. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, tell us a little bit. I mean, obviously don't go recount the book. We, we want to read it, but what was that like? So he asked me for a divorce, but the reality was that, that it was no secret to anyone that we had been having problems for a long time. And <clears throat> because, even though I had been really unhappy and, um, and I knew that he also had been unhappy, I had no real safety net because I had never really supported myself. Yeah, I'd always been supported. I was really scared because I was in my late 40s 
and which felt really old at the time. <laughs> oh, that's so funny now. Um, and, um, but, but, but staring down the barrel of having to completely start all over again and financially support yourself for the first time in your life when you're pushing 50 is pretty scary. Yeah. And, um, so I was kind of a deer in headlights for a while. Now to my husband's great credit, he said at that time, I will support you as long as you need for me to, to get on your feet, which was um, very generous and very kind. And I was mad and I sort of mentally crossed my arms and thought you're damn right you will. It's the least you can do. <laughs> so many emotions. There's so much happening at that point. Were you, at that time, did you feel really supported? Did you have a lot of family helping you and an uh, entire other community that came around? Or did you just kind of have to... Yeah, so I actually discuss that a little bit in the book too because um, both my parents were gone and uh, my sister lives in California and my son was in California by that time too because when, when my ex... Um, and I separated, my son was at USC. So um, I guess he waited until Alex went to college. We had completely relocated neighborhoods my son's senior year, like the second semester of his senior year, so he was grandfathered in. And I had, I, I do talk about this in the book, but I had lived in this very small, tightly knit community and moved out north and people acted like they needed to update their passports to come visit me. And um, so I felt, I felt very much alone. Um, I probably was not as alone as I felt, but perception is reality. I am an introvert for the most part. And so it was okay with me to process this by myself, but but there was also a, an overriding sense of being all alone in this. And I just tackled all of that. Were you the, immediately pulled into your garden? Was that like your happy space? Or was mm -hmm. there a period of destruction? Which can happen <laughs> in, in times like this. You know, we just uh, can't process and don't want to deal. No, I always spent time in my garden. That was always my happy place. At that particular point, I was just gardening in my garden. I mean, I, I, had, I had whimsical gardens, but I wasn't really doing it seriously. I didn't kind of really want to do it anymore. I felt like I'd sort of been there, done that. Because as an artist, my pattern in the world is to get interested in something, I dive in head first, I figure it out while I'm in there, I master it, and then I feel complete. Hi there, I hope that you're enjoying our conversation with the brand new memoirist, Rebecca Wynn, whose book is called 100 Daffodils, out March 24th. Presales are available now on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and online retailers. The Dow Business Law is powered by Blissness School. Blissness School teaches how to use all parts of yourself. We use the right and left brain, the emotional and intellectual, intuition and black letter law. We take the fear out of business by focusing on creating bliss. That's not just business, but blissness. 
Bliss's school is currently accepting applications for our online business incubator. We'll have co-working sessions, professional trainings, tips on how to be excellent community catalysts, as well as one-on-one opportunities to work with professionals. Apply now at blissnessschool.com. Now, let's get back to Rebecca. And it sounds like in that process, you made friends, right? Like, because you have a deeper understanding and awareness of the plant and invasive species like bamboo. I mean, you cannot easily see it when it's invasive. And so it'll bust through concrete and will not leave you alone. It's really hard to get rid of, which you can just observe that. But you have a little bit of a different understanding. Right, because I did a real deep dive into horticulture. I mean, I became the garden writer for um, a magazine here that is regional, but it has the second largest circulation in Texas of any shelter magazine after Architectural Digest. So it's big. And I was their garden writer for all the years that they had a garden writer. And um, I did education for garden clubs. And I, you know, when I get interested in something and dive in head first and figure it out while I'm in there, I really immerse myself. So, um, so it's not really an overstatement to say that I am a self-taught horticulturist and expert in, in that area. So yeah, I, I have a really deep knowledge of the horticulture of this part of the country. I mean, obviously it's very different everywhere. And I did write for, um, for national magazines too, as managing editors would leave the magazine that I started with, they would go other places and they would take me with them because I was this, you know, super meticulous self-editor because I have a learning disability. And so I, I'm very, very careful about my writing because I know that I transpose letters and I trans definitely transpose numbers. And, and so I'm super meticulous about that. So I gave them incredibly clean copy <laughs> because I was so worried that I would make some sort of egregious mistake. So they were like, oh yeah, you know, come come write for me at this magazine. Well, I learned pretty fast that writing horticulture for national magazines is significantly harder than it is for a local magazine because the horticulture in this country is so diverse. So I was always very happy when they wanted me to write about design. <laughs> when you have an inanimate object or one that doesn't talk like my dog, (laughs) sometimes aid in the processing of tracking your own awareness. What what are some of the the gems that popped out in that process for you? Well, it's a little hard to tease out which insights came from nature and which came from the hundreds of hours of therapy and the hundreds of books that I read. I, I... I also did a pretty intensive study of Jungian psychology. So within the book, um, one of the paths that sort of tracks through the book is my own shadow work, personal therapeutic work that I did and reading that I did laid the foundation for then the moments in nature where something would click. There are several themes that move through the book. Because they're essays, um, many of the pieces have sort of a conflict, a discussion, and a resolution all in one piece. They don't all do that because when the book sold, the publisher said that they wanted 
the collection to have an arc. And that wasn't how I had written them. I had written them as individual pieces. So I needed to create that. So there are some pieces that are just sort of lead-ins or just forward the, the meta arc. But many of them have an observation that's then developed and then has sort of a realization. And I touch on so many issues that women go through. There's a piece about body image. I could have written a whole book about that, but it was too depressing. <laughs> um, there's one about seeking external validation. Um, there's one about sort of showing up as the feminine in an environment where masculine energy can be so much more, uh, so much brighter. And um, let's talk about that one. That's really interesting. <laughs> I would love yeah. to hear your thoughts. Well, so that one developed, that one came to me when I was watching a lunar eclipse. Mm-hmm. And I had, um, I'd gone out, waked myself up in the middle of the night and dragged myself out to go see lunar eclipses before. And I'd never sort of waited all the way through. I was always sort of not impressed enough to, stay out there in the freezing cold in the middle of the night. But there was this one lunar eclipse that was much anticipated that was going to happen at a very reasonable hour, (laughs) like 10 o'clock at night or something. So I took myself over to this vacant um, parking lot at a shopping center that's being torn down and redesigned. And I watched this, and have you ever seen a a complete lunar eclipse? I don't know if you noticed this or not, but everybody talks about how the moon turns sort of red or russet. And yes, that happens, but that was not what was interesting to me. What was interesting to me was that at the moment at which it reached its totality, it popped and it suddenly very obviously became this three-dimensional space in the sky because the shadow allowed it to to uh, be fully revealed and um, so in that moment I realized that even though I spend a lot of time in my hot tub outside and I have a, what I consider to be a very close relationship with the moon. I realized that even though I knew that the moon was a sphere, what I had always observed was a disc because of how brightly the sun reflects off of it. And so then I go into this analysis of how often does this happen to the feminine where the bright energy confident energy of the masculine just flashes out and washes out the the beauty and the depth and the complexity of the feminine. When Luna was in shadow was when she finally was no longer being overshadowed. Mm. So, so there's, so, and that's one of the more kind of almost abstract philosophical sort of analysis I'm curious if you feel comfortable talking a little bit more about shadow work because not everyone is familiar with it. I'm hoping to um, be a vehicle. So you, in, in your, um, you know, sort of heads up about what we're going to be talking about. One of the things that you said is 
what do you want to do for others or whatever? And that is one of the things that I really hope to do is to bring into um, a wider discussion, union shadow work, and also global spiritual practices. So I, I reference all kinds of spiritual practices in this. Buddhism, Native American shamanism, the Bible, you know, it's all kind of in there. Because my personal belief is that, that there are as many paths to God as there are people who seek God. I personally need all the help that I can get and am willing to, <laughs> to look to all, all ways of, of accessing the divine. Coming back to our basic questions, it's someone doing something. So you went through your self-transformation and it sounds like un, unintentionally perhaps or subconsciously wrote a book, right? Like just kind of tracked and, and, and had therapy. Someone doing something for someone else. So let's let's dive a little bit deeper. What does that mean to bring Jungian shadow work? I mean, what is that? How did you even come upon that? What what tipped your curiosity in this moment? I would assume in this moment of chaos, for lack of a better word, in that direction. The spiritual practice that I sort of land on mostly myself is called New Thought or Science of Mind. There's a, there's a lot of incorporation of psychology in this particular spiritual practice. So it's kind of a marriage of spirituality, global spirituality and psychology. Um, I do think that those two things are connected as did Carl Jung. That was sort of the split between Freud and Carl Jung was that Freud basically was an atheist and Carl Jung felt that we are spiritual creatures inherently. So came across my first exposure to that in this context and in this point in my life, because I did take psychology when I was in college, but um, at, at the church bookstore. One of the things that I have cultivated in these years since the dissolution of my marriage is my own intuition. So um, I, I believe that my husband was a, uh, a teacher, as I think all important relationships that we have in our life are. And he was a very powerful teacher. He was a hard teacher, <laughs> um, but a good one. And I, um, because I am very sensitive and, um, and an artist and have always sort of operated in a, in the ethers sort of, um, one of the, the, the things that we, he and I were challenged with was that he was very fixed. He was very earthbound. He was, um, he would always say, just the facts, ma'am. He was a lawyer. Um, just the facts, ma'am. I don't really want to know how you feel. I want to know what you know. And, um, and that was so different than how I operate in the world that it felt, um, it felt invalidating. But at the same time, because I had been 
very much reared to be a support to my husband. <laughs> that was the world that I came from. Um, I felt like if, if he felt like the way I showed up in the world was wrong, then I needed to fix that. Um, so a big part of what I needed to learn in my marriage was that how I am is not wrong <laughs> and how to be able to stand in that graciously because I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm unlearning something that has been wounded, this pendulum swings way too far the other way first. <laughs> and then, you know, hopefully we find some kind of balance in the middle. Um, so, so the process with my husband of coming to a place where it was important to me, for me, to figure out what was going in my, on in my life and how to fix it took, unfortunately, me getting to a place of being absolutely miserable, uh, depressed, uh, like depressed, like the kind of depressed where my son would go to school and I would just sit in the living room and stare straight ahead until it was time to go pick him up, like that kind of depressed. And, but I didn't know that because I, I, I didn't even feel empowered enough to go seek help or that was, that was difficult, super, super difficult. And I started going to this church when things hit sort of a crisis point with my husband. I, I had had a friend that was telling me about this church called Unity Church. And she started calling me every Sunday afternoon. And she said, you know, I really think you'd like this church. And I was like, girl, you know I don't go to church. And she was like, yeah, I know, but I think you might go to this church. <laughs> I was like, oh, stop it. And, but she would call me every Sunday afternoon after she'd been. And she says, you know, I really think you ought to check out this place. And, you know, I don't believe in organized religion, blah, blah, blah. And, um, <clears throat> Anyway, one day a crisis hit in my home and I went to church that next Sunday and I wept through the entire service. I had, I have always been a really spiritual person, but I had had bad experiences in organized religious environments. And I was like, yeah, no, that ain't God. <laughs> I mean, I believe in God, but it ain't that. And so I had sort of made up my own religion, I thought. And then I went to this place, and all of a sudden there's somebody up there on the stage basically espousing that, that religion that I made up. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean there are other people who believe this too? You're kidding. So. <laughs> oh, um, other people get in on that, huh? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, so, so that was the beginning of the spiritual path. And because it's a very sort of, intellectual, almost academic kind of approach to the divine um, that just expanded out into the exploration that I pursued. Do you get the sense that your husband, ex-husband, former husband, would also credit you as being a teacher? Do you think that you had any um, effects on sharing the emotional, ephemeral, feminine, divine parts with him or not yet not yet wow 
needs to read the book. Is he gonna, are you gonna send him one? <laughs> well, he, he and I actually have a great relationship now. And he asked me if he could read it in advance. And I said, yeah, sure. And um, I said, just let me check. And I called the publisher and everybody in New York was like, oh no, absolutely not, no way. And I was, then I was like in a super embarrassing kind of a pickle place because I had said, sure, yeah, go ahead. Um, and even though they said absolutely no, no way, no, no, absolutely no, 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 no. <laughs> um, the lawyer who vetted the book because they have a legal team that vets all memoirs or anything like that in almost the same breath of where she said we have a policy no you can't do that she said that being said i have to tell you that i've never read a, a memoir where someone spoke about their ex-husband so kindly so i feel good about that i mean i'm sure that I am a hundred percent sure that he remembers things differently, but he remembered them differently as they were happening. He did not, he was not aware of his impact on me. And I don't hold that against him anymore. Um, because it proved to be really valuable for me. It was hard and it was extremely painful, but it was very valuable. And my hope is that, my hope for him is that he will at some point get into therapy and process some of this stuff because there's a piece in the book called Revelation Revelry. And it's about a moment where I was, I was out of my hot tub, one of my spiritual centers, <laughs> and I was out there in the middle of the day, which I'm usually not, but it was a cool, crisp fall day. It was a beautiful day. It was fairly, you know, <laughs> in relative terms. I mean, if you figure an eight-year separation, that was probably a year into it. <clears throat> and I was out there and the geese were flying south and it was just a beautiful day and I was in a super happy mood and all of a sudden I, I just had like this impact thought what if he was right what if everything he said about me was right what if every mean cruel cutting horrible thing that he ever said to me was a hundred percent right. And then all of a sudden it was like there was this, this parting that happened and I could see this seed of truth. And it wasn't that he was right, but I could see his perspective all of a sudden. And, and, I just, I felt like I'd been like lifted. It was, it was the most liberating moment of my life because all of a sudden, all this anger, all this blame, all this resentment, all this, this hurt and feeling unjustly treated and spoken to and accused, all of a sudden I could see his perspective. I didn't agree with him, 
it's like I say in the in the book, you know, it, it wasn't a giant avocado seed of truth, <laughs> you know? but it was a seed. <laughs> it was a seed that that I could see how if that was your perspective, it could grow into a fully formed sense of rightness. Mm. And that, in my experience, that is the power and the the divine gift of doing your personal work, of doing shadow work, of doing deep psychological introspective wound healing because until you do that work, you're always going to feel accused. You're always going to feel mistreated. You're always going to feel like you were abused. You're always going to have someone to blame. And even though everything that had happened had still happened, my perception of it was able to shift. And that is what's liberating about doing your own healing work. It doesn't mean that they didn't hurt you, but I always have said, it isn't all good. You know, that's the dumbest expression. It's certainly not all good, but maybe it's all valuable. And it is if you're willing to let it be. And the only way you can do that is to be willing to look at your part, honestly. So when you did the Jungian work, <clears throat> were, you, were you working with a therapist? Were you just kind of self-driving this? And that's, um, that's yes and yes. Deep work. Okay. Yes. Um, so let's I, talk I, a little bit more about how one would, because gaining self-perspective, that's a tall order. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. In fact, you know what I call it in the book? I call it a one step forward, two steps back, right off the edge of a cliff process. <laughs> Cause that's what it is, you know, and then you just crawl your way back up and you start again. You know, one of the things that I hope is helpful to people and, and I hope doesn't, you know, just make them run away screaming, um, is that I don't, I don't have five steps to personal healing <laughs> or even 25 steps to personal healing or even 500,000 steps to personal healing. <laughs> the reality is that it's incredibly hard work and you have to, it is shattering to look at your own darkness. It is. We have personas that we not only present to the world, but that we present to ourselves. And we're not going to stop doing that, but we need to know we're doing it. So are you, would you say you're still doing this? I mean, is this oh, when you like we're walking around on this planet? Yeah, for I mean, sure. How does that, right? Because we have this ego that protects us. And at in your late 40s, I mean, I'm in, I'm in the 40s right now, um, that ego is pretty solidified because we are um, required and expected to engage with the world at a very rapid pace. And we don't have a lot of time to really quite frankly be vulnerable. And I think that you hit on this earlier. It, it's a bit of a masculine trait, right? To be very linear and goal oriented and focused 
Um, so to take that time um, and that and have that vulnerability, um, which is a different kind of power, right? Like in the Hindu tradition, yes. lots of dark goddesses. Um, that's what my mind goes to. That's that's my paradigm. So I'm so curious if there's more that you could share about how this revealed itself for you, because I know you can go on Instagram and, and there are people who talk about like shadow work is the best, but <laughs> anybody who says shadow work is the best hasn't done it. <laughs> I mean, like it's so valuable and it's so healing and it's so, it's so important and it is. And so how does that, I mean, how do you even start to go through that? Do you need to be in a crisis to let it kind of, do you think? I don't know. Well, you don't need to be in crisis, but the reality is that we usually are in crisis when we're willing to do what's hard. So when we're not in crisis, it's a lot easier to just do what's easy. And it's, it's just like with addiction, right? They say you have to hit rock bottom a lot of times before you're willing to do the work and take the steps to break out of that destruction cycle of self-destruction. And although it's not as dramatic, it's not as obvious, living in a place of self-deception is also very self-destructive and it can also be destructive to our relationships. So I think that the parallel between addiction and unconsciousness is greater than most of us would probably like to admit, but we all have wounds from, from childhood, from adolescence, from adulthood. You know, we all have wounds. And if we don't heal those, then we are storing them. <laughs> and we're storing them in our psyche, frequently we're storing them in our body. And that is gonna blow out sideways all the time. And as long as our wounds are driving our behavior, or our fear is driving our behavior, then we're going to be perpetuating our own wounds. We're going to be hitting other people's wounds. So, so part of the value of doing healing work is not just how you impact, but it's how you are impacted. So for example, there was a, a point at which my husband said something that was unbelievably aggressive and I had already and and usually when he would say something you know hurtful to me it would just completely derail me completely and the reason was because I hadn't done any healing work and so all those wounds were receptors right they were 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 abuse receptors you know, hurt me hurt me here this one's active you know hurt me here this one's active but what he said that time, it didn't have anywhere to stick. It just went right past me. And in that moment, I could see the origin of the comment as having its place in a wound of his. Mm. And so it's, it's such powerful work to, to both help 
with how you show up in the world and how sensitive you can be to other people's wounds and triggers and, and show up with compassion in that way. But also it's like having a little, you know, Glenda the good pink bubble around you in terms of what's coming your way because people mostly lead with their wounds. And if you've got a receptor for their wound, then you're constantly going to be pulled back into that until you're not. But that isn't going to happen on its own. Hi there. I hope that you're enjoying our conversation with the brand new memoirist, Rebecca Wynn, whose book is called 100 Daffodils, out March 24th. Pre-sales are available now on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and online retailers. The Dow Business Law is powered by Blissness School. Blissness School teaches how to use all parts of yourself. We use the right and left brain, the emotional and intellectual, intuition and black letter law. We take the fear out of business by focusing on creating bliss. That's not just business. But blissness. Blissness School is currently accepting applications for our online business incubator. We'll have co-working sessions, professional trainings, tips on how to be excellent community catalysts, as well as one-on-one -on -one opportunities to work with professionals. Apply now at blissnessschool.com. Now, let's get back to Rebecca. You referenced earlier that you got involved with a younger man. So I guess the first question was how that all precipitated and was that while you were still separated? Sounds yeah. Like mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. It was really crazy because we were both moderators on a, on a, on affinity website on a, on the internet. It was so unlikely <laughs> that we would meet that it's enough to make you believe in karmic relationships. <laughs> Tell us about it. What, I mean, how did that transpire? Well, really, you know, it, we were just in a, a conversation uh, about this, you know, art form that everybody that was on there was talking about it. He and I just happened to both be moderators because we were in different time zones and they put moderators in different time zones, you know, so that it's covered 24 hours since it's, you know, the internet. And so we just kind of got to know each other in the same way that you would get to know anybody in the world, except that it was online. We had things in common and there was a discussion forum. And so you, you know, see people's personality and, and, and it just kind of, we were just friends. I mean, for a while, we didn't really know anything about each other other than opinions about, you know, this thing that we were talking about. So he didn't really know that I was older. I didn't really know that he was younger. Um, and then one day he told me he was in love with me and I was like, wow. And so where were you geographically? He was in a different time zone. Mm, yeah. He, uh, he was in Canada. Do you mind sharing the difference in the age? Um, I do, actually. I'm, um, I don't really like to get into that because it's not the point. The point is that what was valuable to me in this relationship with someone younger was that I was incredibly, I would say almost completely disempowered around the masculine. And so 
what that relationship afforded me was the ability to have de facto power because I was older. And so in that dynamic, I could stand in power that was not earned, but you know, that just existed because I had lived longer and knew more. <laughs> and then, because I mean, in a way he gave you that power because, um, I mean, that was, that was kind of his gift and his honor of you. I can see how it would be, but it, it is kind of tied into an age, but it's also tied into so many other things. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and because he was younger, um, he also had a different view of masculine and feminine relationships than people that were more my contemporaries because I grew up in the more hierarchical patriarchy, right? And there's just less and less and less of that as, as people are coming along. So yeah, he didn't have any problem with me, you know, having power. In fact, he was very, uh, you know, supportive of all of that. Having, um, having emotions, you were... You were granted space to have all of that. Yeah, and um, and to have to like disagree and to um, to be completely unreasonable. To be perfectly honest, you know, talking about the the pendulum swinging too far the other way. As soon as I had any power at all, you know, I mishandled it as one does <laughs> um, when one is learning a new skill, which is standing in your power. <laughs> um, and he, he always saw me as my highest expression. He never took any of that personally. You know, I always say that, that he was only young chronologically. He was a very old soul. And um, I don't remember if I tell this story in, in the book or not, I might, but I, we were talking on the phone one night. I was spinning out about something I was mad about. It didn't have anything to do with him. And, but I was just mad, you know, looking for a target. And he was really quiet on the other end of the phone. And so I turned on him and I said, what's the matter? Why aren't you saying anything? And he said, Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't saying very much. I was just really trying to center my energy so I could help ground you. And in that moment, every drop of anger that I felt, every, it all just melted away. And I felt so held and seen and supported. And um, it, was, it was a beautiful thing while it lasted. So did you ever meet in person? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Absolutely. But it was a couple of years later. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we were in a relationship for eight years. Did that relationship give you some insight into the dynamic with your former husband? As far as that, just the power dynamic, I'm sure it's a completely different individual. Enormous, enormous. Actually, uh, one of the ways that I reassure my ex-husband that he doesn't really need to worry about this book is that it's mostly not even about him. It's mostly about Glenn. Um, because that was 
that was the school of most of those years. So the husband had been, you know, the school, school. decades past. (laughs) But this was graduate school. Glenn was graduate school. These are really intimate about this other person. (laughs) Uh, My husband (laughs) at the time did not. Um, so he, he would ask me every once in a while else, if I was like, seeing anybody I'm and I would just say no because I didn't really think it was any of his business. In what way did you want to, yeah, were you yeah. driven to share this with us? Not just others, like your friends and family, but like the world, total strangers. Yeah. Um, well, initially I wasn't. <laughs> and so it was sort of like boiling um, the frog. And I have a friend <laughs> who, know, I mean, friend initially actually, I was just letting works, you know, friends read it. Um, and media. she it started for to be years and she the prospect of with being books, you know, now, a real book. And, and, and I had sent her a few you know, of they my essays. And then sold. Um, I have to say she's English. So she doesn't just say nice things and all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And they wanted all of these and I actually still have a message that she left on my I mean, voicemail it, it after might seem that she way, read these because my understanding um, she said, uh, is that you I did actually have no idea you could write like into giving <laughs> life, breathing life into I, the book. I had thought I might be self-published. I did, definitely. And she yeah. said, I mean, yes, do I definitely that. did. I really and in this, in this, this weird kind of way, and somehow when I was writing, I was just writing what was true. I wasn't really thinking about how I was exposing myself. And... And I was articulating these um, these unfoldings, these these epiphanies, these these profound spiritual shifts that were happening inside of me. I was just putting them into words for myself, and and then I was when when it sold and it was happening, and they had certain things that they needed for me to fill in with. I was still doing that. That was how I wrote. I didn't know how to not say what was true. And honestly, I hadn't really thought about that, that, man, you're walking out there all naked. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't really thought about that until just recently. Yeah, it's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And, um, a few people have read it in advance and um, a lot of people cry, which I love. (laughs) Um, And, and people have said, gosh, I feel like you're writing about me. And that is probably the biggest compliment that you can get when you're writing a memoir and people feel so they can identify with it so strongly that it ceases to be my memoir. It's their story that, that I, you know, it's our story. I, the details are mine, but the story's ours. Someone doing something for someone else in exchange for something. What, I mean, you've already covered so much, but in your own words, like, what do you think you have gotten out of the experience of becoming a, a soon to be published author? Just amazing. It's been transformative for me. And I've been through a lot of transformation in the last few years. And this has been a whole other one. Um, because, and this is a whole other conversation, but 
having a learning disability and writing a book, those two things don't, you know, they don't overlap very easily. And because of that, I had all sorts of wounds around what I was able to do intellectually and academically. And, and so I had enormous fears around all of that and lack of permission. Among many other things, I really, really demonstrated to myself resilience. You know, the gift to me was resilience because, or, or finding out the resilience that I have. Because, boy, once you have a contract with a big five publisher, they're not fooling around. You know, they they expect you to be a professional. And I was like, I, I'm not a professional. I've never taken a writing class in my life. I've never even taken a writing workshop. I had no idea how any of this worked. And I was completely reinventing the wheel every single step of the way. And in the meantime, I was fighting against this incredibly loud voice inside my head telling me how unworthy I was of this and how I'd bitten off way more than I could chew and how embarrassed I was going to be. And all I had was this tiny little voice over here, this little hopeful voice going, maybe you're wrong, maybe you're wrong, maybe you're wrong. Mm. And I got up every single day and I fought that demon and, and it was huge. This is the most difficult thing I've ever undertaken in my life. And I have done a lot of hard things and none of them even approach this. Um, the, the standards that they have, the parameters that they have, the expectations that they had. Um, and their assumption was that I was more than capable of doing that. Unfortunately, I did not also have that assumption about myself. So I, I pushed through a lot and I can tell you without fear of contradiction that I am in no way the same person that I was a year and a half ago when this book sold. And that doesn't even count you know, the 15 years that the memoir actually covers and all of those transformations. Um, I, I've lived many lifetimes in the last, um, the last 15 okay. years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've, you've mentioned a couple times consciousness and I just like to throw this extra question in, right? Okay. What is like a spirituality consciousness how does that um it's a bit another big question but how do you put your hands on that how do you describe what you're talking about when you mean consciousness or spirituality if they mean the same thing and if they don't please distinct for me when i say consciousness usually what i mean is is the presence and the self-awareness that comes from doing your own deep personal work. And when I use that word or its opposite, unconscious, usually what I'm referring to is the difference between operating from a level of awareness and acceptance of responsibility for, for your own woundings and how and knowing how that shows up understanding that everything that you see and opinions that you form are your perspective and then understanding why you have the perspective that you have and unconsciousness would be the opposite of all that. It would be just operating off the cuff, thinking that you're always right, assuming that everyone that disagrees with you is wrong, not being willing to, um, 
own your own wounds and, and negative behaviors, not being willing to own your impact, not being able to say you're sorry, not being able to, to do anything that holds people in a place of connection. So to me, consciousness, a higher level of consciousness affords a higher level of connection. As long as you're unconscious, then you're disconnecting. You're seeing everyone else's other. You're, you're perceiving their opinions as wrong. It's about disconnection versus connection, consciousness versus unconsciousness. I don't, for me, the path to those levels, those I consider higher levels of awareness came through spiritual practice, through analysis, through a study of psychology and a willingness to acknowledge all the ways in which I'm not very likable and not very nice and um, have done and said things that I wish I could take back and sometimes have done and said things that were really not very nice and I'm not at all interested in taking them back. And, you know, so all of this, you know, we are so complex and yet we want to simplify ourselves into something that's very lovely and very likable and, and very Instagram worthy. And the reality is that we're, we're that sure we're that, but that's probably maybe half of 1% of what we are. And we're really so much more interesting than that. Well, Rebecca Wynn, the book is 100 Daffodils, Finding Beauty, Grace, and Meaning When Things Fall Apart, coming out March 24th, 2020. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing yourself and your work. And you can find Rebecca on Instagram at Rebecca Wynn, W-I-N-N dot writer, and also at Whimsical Gardens, which is just fantastic to look at the, the images and the pictures of beautiful blooms and plants. And um, I'm looking forward to both reading the book and looking at more photos. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. The Dow Business Law Podcast is produced by Business School, LLC. All rights reserved.